Our text for this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord as we continue in this series uh, through the book and the story of Nehemiah. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official heard this, it it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, would you speak your good news to us this morning? We are listening. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. Amen. I confess that when I first read this passage, I didn't really notice anything significant. It reads kind of like an ancient LinkedIn uh, network, right? Nehemiah is basically just asking the king to network for him, to call in a few favors. There's no miracle. There's no important victory for Israel. There's no prophetic word. Just a couple of requests for lumber and for security, which the king is happy to grant. And yet, as Nehemiah is telling the story, he senses that this is a sign to him that, gracious, that God's gracious hand was still upon him, which I think serves as a pretty good reminder that our routine lives, even our routine lives on LinkedIn, are charged with more significance than we often realize. It's possible, it seems, that, that doing something as ordinary as making a connection for someone, maybe sending an email or doing a favor when asked to be seen as a sign of God's grace, of God's presence. Presbyterian minister Dick Halverson, uh, I think, captured the essence of this in the benediction that he used for many years as he served uh, as the chaplain to the U.S. Congress. As he sent lawmakers out into the world, he would tell them, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has purpose in putting you there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you wherever you are. Believe this and go in his grace and love and power. For those of you who protest that this makes us robots and God a kind of programmer or a puppet who's kind of pulling the strings, puppeteer pulling the strings, first of all, welcome to the Presbyterian tradition. (laughs) Sorry if you made it here by accident. But secondly, and more seriously, the grace that is found, I think, in Halverson's words 
Um, it's not in the, the, the fatalistic overtone that is kind of there, but in the reminder that there is no place that is closed off from God's presence and God's purpose. That when God calls us, God chooses to work through the very raw material of our lives, wherever we are, to both transform us and to change and impact the world around us. This is what I think it means that God's gracious hand was on Nehemiah. In his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks describes something he calls a telos crisis. Telos is the, the Greek word for end or goal or maybe even purpose. And so a telos crisis is defined by the fact that people who are experiencing a telos crisis, they don't know what their purpose is. It's a, a malaise of uncertainty that kind of uh, about who we are and what we're, we're living for. People who are experiencing a, a telos crisis have basically like lost the thread, lost the story of their lives, that story that gives it meaning and purpose. Maybe you know what this is like. Maybe uh, you are undergoing your own telos crisis right now. I think that the pandemic has kind of launched us all into a bit of a telos crisis. And one example, uh, I think, is the impact that the pandemic had on work. Uh, this pandemic has really disrupted and disoriented the way that we approach work, some good ways, but also in some ways that, that leave us a little bit confused and maybe burned out. I just learned this week that the World Health Organization updated their definition of burnout, which was a really big deal. They updated it to a stress syndrome uh, defined by, quote, resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. I haven't successfully managed anything over the last 18 months, right? So I don't know if that rings true for you, but it, it definitely rang true for me. A recent survey by Microsoft found that 40% of the global workforce, 40% considered leaving their job in the last year. And in May, the share of workers here in this country who voluntarily uh, quit their jobs hit the highest level that it ever has been recorded by the Department of Labor. There was an article in, in April written by a, a journalist whose career I've been following named Kevin Roos. And it was published by the New York Times and the title of the article was Welcome to the YOLO Economy. Are you familiar with this acronym YOLO? Okay, some ask like a 25-year-old and they will tell you what YOLO means. Uh, YOLO was an acronym that was uh, popularized basically by the rapper Drake. This is why you need to ask a 25-year-old. Um, and it stands for you only live once. You only live once. And so this became the working philosophy of many people who changed their careers or jobs or something about their life in the pandemic. And here's a, a couple of quotes from Kevin's article from the people that he talked to. One person said, I realized I was sitting at my kitchen counter 10 hours a day, feeling miserable. I just thought, what do I have to lose? We could all die tomorrow. Another person said, it feels like we've been so locked into careers for the past decade, and this is our opportunity to switch it up. The idea of going right back to the pre-COVID setup sounds so unappealing after this past year. If not now, when will I ever do this? Roos admits that the, the YOLO economy is a result of many different things. But if you listen closely to uh, people who are looking for something different right now, maybe people who are in the middle of a telos crisis, the overwhelming reason 
is a general disillusionment about their purpose, about their purpose. A lot of people feel like maybe they were just working a career, but they weren't fulfilling a calling. Maybe you feel this way. Or maybe it doesn't have anything to do with your job or work. Maybe just in the, in the last year you gained some perspective and you want to start to live a little bit more intentionally as a result. One of the, the questions that I'm often asked as a minister is if God has a specific plan for each of our lives and how to know what that plan is. It's a sincere question. I love this question and I wish that I had a playbook for each of you, but either they didn't trust me with that at ordination for some reason, or it just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And so I usually tell people that God's plan is always to partner. It's always to partner from creation to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophets, to the calling of the 12 disciples, to the sending of the apostles. God's plan has always been to partner uh, with us to use our specific gifts and experiences and skills and backgrounds and failures to some redemptive end. That is what I think it means to have a calling. And so maybe as many of us are considering a job change or a life change as a result of this pandemic, or maybe as we're just reevaluating what our priorities are, thinking about what our purpose possibly could be. Maybe it's time to kind of get some clarity about what calling is and maybe what our calling is. And I think that Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah in general, but also these few on the surface insignificant verses in particular have something to offer to us. Nehemiah shows us that a calling is something that someone or something else asks you to do and you do it for them and not for yourself. It's something that someone or something else asks you to do and you do it for them and not for yourself. This is uh, different than a career, right? A career we usually build by kind of taking an inventory of our skills, what we're good at, uh, and then we hone those skills uh, to create a life for ourselves. That's not, that's not bad, but a calling is something different. A calling is not just a dream that you have for your life. A calling is in Thomas's words the last couple weeks, it's a, it's a burden. It's a burden that you develop to do for someone or something else. Nehemiah was summoned to build these walls for Jerusalem. And to our knowledge, Nehemiah didn't have like any experience doing this. He was a cupbearer. He didn't know how to rebuild a city. Do not be surprised if you feel called to do something for which you have zero experience. That is literally the most on-brand thing that God could do. Which means that calling is not reserved for people with special training. Everyone has a calling. Everyone has a calling. And actually, I love what Andy Crouch says about everyone having three callings. The first calling that we have is to just bear the image of God into the world. That means just like being alive, you are fulfilling a calling, right? Low bar, post-pandemic. You just wake up in the morning, you have a calling. It's fulfilled. 
Second calling is to restore the image of God in the world. So every act of of justice, of love, of mercy, every time we heal something that might be wounded or broken and restore that, we have fulfilled the second calling. But he said we also each have a third calling. Those first two callings are a calling that all of us share. But each of us also has a third calling. And he calls this our contingent calling. We're all in particular places. We're all in particular neighborhoods, homes, workplaces. And we all bring kind of different resources and skills and attention and energy to those places. In service of those places. That is what our contingent calling is. And the point is that these callings, these contingent callings, they change kind of all the time. You can have 30 contingent callings throughout the course of your life. And even though they are contingent, I believe that these are still holy callings. They're holy callings. When my son Thomas was four years old, just a few years ago, as I was leaving for work, I asked him uh, if he had any idea what I did for work, which is a scary thing to ask a toddler. Um, I noticed a, a very vulnerable thing to ask. But on this occasion, he confidently said, yes, of course, I know what you do. And I said, well, what, what is it? And he said, you help people and you sing with your friends. <laughs> which like to this day is still the best explanation actually of what I do day in, day out, right? I'm just, I help and I sing. Those are the two things. I have been a pastor just long enough now to, de- to uh, have developed at least two pet peeves as it relates to my work, to my job. The first is um, that people feel the need to apologize to me whenever they swear around me, or at least most people. <laughs> most people. I'm not going to make any eye contact. And the second, the, the, section, the, the second is that the assumption that there are some jobs that are holier than other jobs. They're related, these two, right? And this is a holdover from before the the Protestant Reformation. Before the the Protestant Reformation, the only people who were thought to receive a calling at all were religious people. These were your priests, your monks, your nuns. Back then, the, the world was much more kind of neatly divided into secular and sacred. And the church kind of thought it of itself as the only location of the kingdom of God. And so only work done and kind of on behalf of the church or in the church could be considered sacred. I think one of the most profound and the most defining theologies to emerge after the Reformation is this belief in the the priesthood of all believers. That is, all of us have a holy calling. God calls us to uh, work right where we are, and this work is sacred. In his poem, uh, How to Be a Poet, Wendell Berry has a line that has always stuck with me. It goes like this, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. There are no unsacred places. In other words, there's no distinction between the sacred and the secular. There is a difference between the sacred and the profane. It is possible for us to profane that which is sacred. But the point is, is that all of creation is already sacred to begin with. And so any work, paid or unpaid, in this created world has the possibility of being sacred, of being holy work. The, the architect, Christopher Wren, uh, who was responsible for rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral after the Great Fire of London, 
tells a story about a time that he was walking uh, kind of the length of, of the rebuilding project of the cathedral. And he asked three different bricklayers there what they were doing. The first responded, I'm working. The second responded, I'm building a wall. And the third paused and looked up and said, I'm, I'm building a cathedral to the Almighty. Many of us, I think, often feel like we're that first bricklayer. I'm just working day in, day out. But the truth is that if we're called to it, and whatever we're called to, it's far more than just work. You have a calling. You might not know what it is, but you do. And here's a question that might help you kind of discern what this contingent calling for your life is. How with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I do of God's will and human need? How with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I know of God's will and human need? Look around you. What are the needs that you see in your neighborhood, in your home, in your community? What needs do you actually see? And start there. I think that's the best place to begin. Before even thinking about what you're good at, look at what the world needs. That's what Nehemiah did. The world needed, the world that he was in, Jerusalem, needed these city walls and the city to be rebuilt, and he started there. If he had looked inside to his own gifts and experiences, he probably never would have gone to build the wall. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And my friends, God will meet you there in that place. But the other thing that we learn about calling in these verses from Nehemiah is that not only will God meet you there, but so will other people. So will other people. Chances are as alone as you might feel in your calling, you aren't really. You aren't. That's the amazing thing. Once you begin to act on what you feel called to do, you will discover other people who share your calling, show up to help you. Just a, a few weeks ago, as our country was frantically trying to get Afghan refugees and allies out of the country, a member of our church uh, who has participated in the, the refugee ministry was in contact with an Afghan family that um, she and her husband had come to love as dear friends. This family lives here in the United States, but was there visiting relatives and were stuck and were trying to get out. And so she felt called. She felt called at a specific time, a specific, a specific day of the week, to go to her, uh, her friend's house, to their, this family's house, and to pray for them. And she invited a group of other people from Covenant who she knew also cared for and loved this family. And so they drove to the house and they kind of gathered in the driveway. And as they were gathering in the driveway, some of their neighbors came and also prayed with them. And they began to pray. And as they were praying, they heard a voice say, hello? Hello? She's like, God? You know, like, <laughs> did we do it? Are we... But they realized that this was the voice of the man that they were praying for. And somehow, uh, as they were gathering in the driveway, they had, he had picked up their activity on his Ring doorbell app, which is on his phone, 
while he was in Kabul in the morning waiting to go to the airport for another attempt. Which, this is not the most amazing part of this story. Um, as amazing as it is, they were able to, to pray for him and his family and encourage them as they were about to make this attempt, but they heard the next day that this attempt that they had made uh, had failed, had failed pretty badly. And so determined still to, to help them, she and her husband started reaching out to people and, who, who, who kind of could join them. And this turned into a, a network of people all united by prayer, an unlikely network of people working together who shared the same calling. And eventually, people who knew people who knew people were able to get in touch with people on the ground, and they were able to get to them. Which is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and they were able to get them safely out of the country. And they're here now. And I tell you all this, uh, not to make them the heroes, because they do not want to be recognized as that. Um, that's why I haven't used any names. I tell you this story to remind you that you are not alone. And you won't be alone wherever you go, fulfilling whatever calling God has on your life, whatever you are called to do. There will always be people. There will always be others who share that same calling, who will show up, and who will help you. You go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has a purpose in putting you there. Christ who indwells you has something that he wants to do in and through you right where you are. My friends, believe this and go in the grace and the love and the power of God. Amen.